Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In real estate investing, having a proven, repeatable formula is highly conducive to succeeding in the long run. Getting to be an expert in a specific niche will make you more competitive, relevant, and sustainable in your efforts. Today's guest, Willie Mandrell, founder of the Mandel Group and the Wealth Builder Nation, does all three and four unit residential properties, all in designated neighborhoods in Boston, where he's lived practically his entire life. Willie has the relationships, the rehab, and the financing down to a process that has made him a multimillionaire in the last 15 years. So today we have with us a man in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, he's been doing some super cool stuff. A lot of triplexes has really invented himself out of thin air. He is the owner and broker at the Mandrell Company and founder and organizer at Wealth Builder Nation. Has a lot of interesting things to say. Willie Mandrell, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm excited. Yeah, that makes two of us. You know, so many of the people that I talk to, you know, are doing 200 units, you know, they're doing 200 units in Texas. Like that's pretty much, you know, the lion's share of who I talk to. You know, I say Texas, I mean that kind of figuratively. In other words, you know, Atlanta, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there gets to be a sameness about that. And the reason I was am so excited to talk to you is because, um, you know, you're doing smaller stuff in, in a, you know, in a top 10 market. And the reason I am so interested is because I live right outside of San Francisco and what you're doing is way more consistent with what my experience is and kind of fascinates me. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. Not that you were particularly, um, you know, curious, but um, that was it. And so before we get to all that and what you're doing now, Willie, maybe give me your background and uh, are you born and raised in Boston and where'd you go to school and, you know, what led you to the uh, world of real estate, et cetera? Yeah, born and raised in Boston, been here all my life. We moved away a couple of times, lived in New Jersey for a little bit, Springfield, Massachusetts, but for the most part, been in Boston, you know, all my life. Uh, I went to middle school here, high school here. Uh, didn't, I was one of those kids that didn't really, you know, desire to really go straight far away from home for college. I went to Northeastern University, right, you know, uh, 20 minutes away from my house, met my wife there. She also, you know, like I said, wasn't too far from home. You know, we have two kids now. She's a pharmacist. I'm, I'm obviously in real estate. But getting into real estate, I think I, I bought my first house at 23. And I give a, you know, I'm, I'm for those of you who probably haven't read it or you have read it, uh, reading the book, The Psychology of Money, and talks a lot about just kind of luck and risk and hard work. You know, when people do something, you know, uh, incredible, they kind of contribute a lot of it to their own hard work. And then people from the outside might attribute it to, to luck more than, than often than not. But I realized that, you know, I, I was lucky in the sense that I had, uh, my grandmother who had a little bit of experience in real estate. Uh, she owned a couple buildings, uh, did really well for herself. Uh, and really pushed me throughout my younger years, even when I was in high school, going into college, buy multifamily, buy multiple units, and really just kind of ingrained that in me. Um, and when I got out of, of, of college, 
I think a year after I bought my first two family uh, and really just fell in love with the business. I also went to school for, uh, you know, finance, economics as well. So I really understood how money worked. And I was really curious about how wealth was built. And when you couple those two things, I got very, very lucky. My grandmother pushing me into this incredible field. And then my finance background, coupling those two things together gave me a solid foundation for just understanding real estate, understanding the investment world, uh, and just kind of building from there. I, you know, I bought that first two family. I think my tenant was paying 60 to 70% of my uh, mortgage payment off every, every, every year, or excuse me, every month. And I just kind of like, this is, this is fantastic. You know, it was 2006. Uh, at the time I had like about a, about a six months of appreciation left. I was riding the market wave up. Didn't realize that 2007, the stock market would crash. 2008, the housing market would crash. Um, but also again, that finance background was one of the things that, that benefited me. I understood that recessions are, or recessions and market turns are things that happen. You know, we're going to have pullbacks. We're going to have downturns. Um, but you know, I was 20 in my twenties. I understood, uh, luckily through taking economics courses and everything that people like Warren Buffett would preach when the, you know, when blood is in the streets, when, when things are, you know, when everyone's running one way, you want to be looking for opportunity. Um, that's exactly what I did. So 2010, 11, 12, 14, um, I just turned around and bought some really great assets and rode the market all the way back up. And, you know, I'll probably do that again two or three more times and, you know, in my lifetime, maybe more, you know, who knows, but that's kind of me in a nutshell, you know, kind of been in the business for roughly 15 years now. And, uh, you know, I love every minute of it. You know, I love the control of my time. I love the, the ability to be doing something different every day. Uh, and I love just, you know, teaching it to other people as well. When you moved to New Jersey as a kid, why did you move to New Jersey? Good question. My my father was, and this is another thing I can I can I can harp on. My my grandmother. People say they say, "Oh, his grandmother was in real estate, so she handed him a bunch of stuff, and that's why he had an advantage." That's not that's not necessarily true. My father was he's a bad boy. He got mixed up in drugs, uh, uh, all types of other you know crimes and stuff like that. Spent a lot of time in jail. My mother was essentially running away from my father. Uh, and that's why we ended up in New Jersey. She was basically, they were both, they were both raised in Boston, very familiar with it. She now has three children uh, with this guy and she's just year after year. He just doesn't seem like to be the person that's going to change, uh, improve his life. Uh, and there was an opportunity for us to go stay with some family and some friends. And she took that opportunity just to kind of get us and herself away from the chaos uh, that ensued around my uh, my father and uh, you know his his life choices. So when you said had three kids with this guy, you're saying your mom had three kids with your dad. My mom had three kids with my dad. Yeah, m myself and my two younger brothers. I'm the oldest of three. Got it. And where in New Jersey was that? I can't remember to be honest with you. I want to say Trenton, but I, I I don't know to be honest with you. I mean, it was it was years ago. I'm 38 now, and uh, you're talking about you know uh, more than 30 years ago. So, so you were a kid. Okay, so you bought a duplex at 23. You're humble enough to you know attribute a lot of your success to your, the fact that you know your your grandmother was into it and turned you on to it at a young age. That's impressive. Humility tends to be, in my experience, rare. And so I guess like, where did you go from there? And then, you know, you said in the, in the lean years of 10, 11, 12, 14, you were buying. And so were you doing like, was it duplexes and triplexes pretty much? That's what it was. That was what the model was a and B, were you an active broker at that point or have you been an active broker? Yeah. So, so 
a couple different things. I, you know, I had when I when I got out of school, I bought that multifamily, but that wasn't you know, obviously it wasn't cash flowing enough for me to survive, right? I still had to go to work. And what I did was I went into the securities industry, uh, financial services, right? I had my stockbroker's license. I wasn't doing any trading. I was more in compliance, you know, working over and and, and hovering over the stockbrokers and making sure that they were treating their clients um, in a fiduciary capacity. So my job was basically to kind of go in and I, I had all the, I had this this vast amount of knowledge in the financial financial world or this financing industry. And I'm a numbers guy. And, uh, you know, I kept going in and I tried to figure out how soon I can retire, um, how soon I can get out of the rat race, how soon I can get out of the nine to five. And when you're poor, I grew up poor, you know, despite my grandmother having some success, my mother wasn't, you know, uh, that was my father's mother. My mother wanted to do her own thing. And she, like I said, moved us to New Jersey, moved us around to Springfield, Mass, a couple other places. My grandmother stayed in touch, but essentially, you know, my mother uh, was kind of our guardian and, and, and kind of in charge of the things that we did. So for me, fascinated with money, fascinated with making that next step as I, as I you know, kind of get my way through school. Um, so I'm constantly doing financial calculations. And, you know, a million dollars always seemed like that number that was, you know, fantastic. If I can just become a millionaire, then everything would be set. And I did that calculations early in my, you know, my working career, you know, inside and out achieved. How quickly can I get to a million dollars? And then I was always hitting 45 years old or 50 years old. I had a million dollars. And then you would start to draw out on that million dollars and you realize it wasn't going to last you very long. I think one of the questions that really hit me was uh, a gentleman that I used to work with. And he said to me, he was like, do you spend more money on the weekdays or weekends? And I said, of course, I spend more money on the weekends. We're not working on the weekends. I'm out with the girlfriend doing this and that. And he said, but when you retire, isn't every day a weekend? And I was like, shit, that that makes perfect sense. How can I possibly think I'm going to live on $50,000 today and then live on $50,000 25 years from now or the equivalent of that when I'm not going to be working out with grandkids and everything else? So I said, a million dollars doesn't doesn't work for me. It doesn't. So I said $2 million and $3 million. And I couldn't find a, a mathematical calculation that made sense to me. And that's when it hit me. Real estate was the way to go. And it wasn't be by accumulating uh, enough savings or not, uh, big enough net worth. It was through generating cash flow that was consistent that would pay me throughout my retirement years, building up that cash flow, hitting a certain number where I can finance my lifestyle, and then continuing that that cash those cash streams of income throughout my retirement. And that was the best way for me to go. So to answer your question, yes, it's always been twos and threes. And the reason I take that approach is because. Um, and this may sound awful to some people if you're not in the business or maybe even the people that are in the business, but I can find a lot more value and I can create a lot more value in residential property, twos, threes, and fours than I can once you get up into commercial space uh, where brokers are very savvy, sellers are very savvy, uh, and they're trading on cap rate. They're trading on strictly ROI and everything else, whereas a three-family is purchased by an FHA buyer. Any FHA buyer, whoever it is, a conventional loan doesn't take care of the property. And I go in and I can be able to grab that property under market value, do some renovations, constructions, fix it up uh, and, uh, you know, improve and, and, and walk in with some equity right from day one. So to answer your question, uh, the backside of your question, initially, the first purchase was a rent ready property, a two family move in rent ready. I lived there. Tenant was ready to go. Second property, rent ready property. What I did was honestly, and you said I was humble, but I'm not going to be humble here. Actually, pretty clever. Uh, had my wife, prior to her being my wife, actually buy another three family in her name with a very low down payment FHA loan. Now we're sitting on eight units. Now it's time to get a little bit more creative. And that's when I started learning how to do renovations, 
buying really beat up properties, dilapidated properties, getting commercial financing, uh, using renovational loans, hard money, uh, refinancing out of those loans. Basically, the Burr strategy that you hear about, you know, over and over again. We're basically doing that in Boston. And so, when you say beat up, dilapidated properties, were the what were the neighborhoods? Were they were these dilapidated in C neighborhoods, B neighborhoods? You know, path of progress, or were they just C neighborhoods, no path of prod, no path of progress, but just big cash on cash on the front end? Like, what was the nature of it? I, for me, it's hard because I, I mean, everything in in Boston is in the path of progress, right? I tried to go. You know, you drop the pedal in the the pebble in the pond, and there's a ripple effect, right? Um, we dump a bunch of money into the downtown Boston, the middle of the city, and obviously, you know, uh, South Boston, Charlestown, some of Cambridge, uh, some of the more prestigious neighborhoods in Boston. You know, people, and this is a natural progression of things, right? People get pushed out, priced out. They start to go to neighborhoods next door. I try to get a couple, uh, like you said, in the path of progress, a couple ripples uh, ahead of what's going on. But Boston's a very, it's it's there, it's a dense city. It's a very small city at the end of the day. Everything is really in the path of progress. At the end of the day, this is my personal opinion. I've been here all my life. Harvard University is here. MIT is here. You know, BU, Boston, Boston College, Boston University, they have some of the best schools in the world, some of the best hospitals with mass eye and ear, children's hospitals. People come from all over the world to train here, to learn here, and they end up staying here. And, uh, you know, our population is only growing. Our, our mayor, uh, uh, Marty Walsh, uh, now the Department of Laborhood Secretary, a couple of years ago when he was the mayor, called for 70,000, 200,000 more units uh, that were needed uh, after he looked at population growth and everything else. So we've always, uh, in my short, you know, 15 years of doing this, uh, have always been in the path of progress. It's just a matter of time, you know, here. And we don't really see rent dips either. We, you know, rents in my time uh, period in the last 15 years have doubled. I was collecting about $1,500 a month for three bedrooms when I first started this journey. Um, and we are now collecting roughly $3,000 a month for three bedroom apartments. Well, compared to San Francisco, even now it's cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can imagine. San Francisco is an expensive place to live. I mean, and that's, it's hard to, you know, to compare, um, you know, uh, experiences from city to city, you know, and I, I know exactly what you were saying when you were saying that, you know, the Texas buyer, I know the, the, the Midwest, you know, the Texas, the, you know, the Atlantas, you know, when you're buying things at $50,000 a door, $100,000 a door, it's much different, you know, here in Boston, you know, our stuff is, you know, $400,000 a door, you know, so I, I, I stopped buying two families a while ago, two families just don't make sense for me any, any longer. The, you don't really hit that economies of scale uh, that you need. Three families and above, three and fours are really where I find, for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, throughout the pandemic, um, I had one tenant who basically said, hey, we're in a global pandemic. And from March of 2020, as soon as the pandemic hit, decided he didn't want to pay me anymore. And uh, you know, we are now in May of 2021. I am just now receiving all the back rent from a subsidy. But the reason I was able to survive is because he was only one third of the rent that was being collected uh, from that particular building, opposed to one uh, or excuse me, 50 percent if it was a two family. So 60 percent, 66 percent of the rents uh, covered all of my expenses and everything else. I wasn't putting any money in my pocket throughout the pandemic from this particular building. Uh, but now that, you know, all of these federal and state subsidies have hit, uh, he has now, um, you know, petition uh, applied for all that stuff and I've gotten all that money back. Uh, but the point is uh, that that economies of scale, that three to four units is really the point that I like to hit 
uh, or that sweet spot where I can still make a, uh, you know, a solid investment and not have to worry about, you know, losing, you know, 50% of my income, you know, on the back end. Do you manage your own properties? Oh God. Good question. Uh, up until about nine months ago, I did. And then I, uh, I, I've hired in, in the past a prop, couple property management companies and I never liked the way they operate. I was just another number or, or a couple more doors for them. And my tenants would always call me back. And I, I remember this uh, on several occasions, my tenants would call me back and say, you know, th- th- these property, th- these guys are just not taking care of the building the way you used to. And then I would drive by and I would notice that there was trash overflowing and, you know, just the, the lawn, the landscape, it wasn't taken care of. So long story short, I pulled back. And then about nine months ago, I basically decided to start my own property management company just to take care of my properties as the portfolio continued to grow. So I have a property manager, a virtual property manager out of Virginia now. She takes care of all of our calls and you know uh, maintenance requests and everything else. Uh, and then we have we bought a couple of company vehicles, and I'll have boots on the ground as well in terms of maintenance and carpenters and uh, you know and, and landscapers and stuff like that. So yes and no, I, I own the company, but uh, a, a few other people manage the properties for me technically. Right on, man. So, so how many properties slash units do you are in your portfolio at this point? Well, like we were talking about before, uh, knock on wood, if everything goes smoothly in the next twenty four hours, it will be uh, roughly sixty five. Wow, man! In a market like that, that's impressive. <laughs> that's, thank that, you, thank you. that is just huge, man. That is like you learn from your grandmother, man. She is she still alive? She is not. No, we lost her about five, six years ago. But think about her all the time. I mean, she's she's you know, like I said, a big reason I'm in this business. And one of the things that she always said to me, and it, it sticks with me so so much. She was like, she's you know, she she moved up to Boston in nineteen, I want to say nineteen fifties or a little bit little before that. She's from you know Macon, Georgia herself. Uh, had a sixth grade education. There was no high school requirement. Obviously, there was you know prior to Brown versus the Board of Education, there was no opportunity for her to go to college. Um, and she used to always tell me, she was like, I'm a black woman from the South moving up to Boston. Uh, this is before schools are integrated. This is, you know, a, a lot of things are going on in the Boston in 1950s and 1960s. And she's like, look what I was able to do with myself based on my education and the resources that I had. You are growing, growing up in a different time. You're going to have a high school education. You're going to have a college education. You should be able to do so much more with yourself. Um, you should be able to take what I've did and, and 10 X it. She was, she was 10 Xing things before Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone got that from my grandmother. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, she, it, that's something that always sticks with me. Uh, is just the fact that she was able to achieve what she was able to achieve in such a, uh, different environment. Uh, me with the resources that I have should be able to, you know, do so much more the ed- with the education and everything else that comes with it. Wow. What are you buying properties for now, whether it be a threeplex, a fourplex, you know, what's the cap X on them typically? And, you know, then what, what is ultimately, you know, your cash on cash, you know, I guess in the, once they're stabilized. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I'm going to, this may sound really, uh, kind of absurd to a lot of people, but I don't use a lot of, even with the economics background and the finance background, I keep things really simple. I don't really use a lot of uh, financial measures. I, I, I'm i looking at two different things for me. Um, so to answer your question, I'll answer the first part of your question and I'll get into that in terms of financial measures. Uh, for me today, the typical deal looks like a $600,000 purchase on a three family, uh, $200,000 in renovations uh, and an ARV or an after repair value of about a million dollars. 
Um, so I'm walking away or not walking away, but uh, I would say that that renovation, the, the big the big thing here is the bureaucracy that comes with uh, pulling permits and renovating properties. It's not an easy thing to do. Technically, it only takes me about 90 days to renovate three units, probably probably even less. The trouble that you have is you might add a couple of months onto that just for the permitting process. Uh, the permitting and inspection process will probably add a couple months to your timeline. Another month or so for lease up. Um, so let's call it six to eight months in terms of my renovation process. So I'm buying it at six, putting another two hundred thousand dollars into it, and then you know, like I said, roughly uh, ARV is somewhere around a million, uh, creating about two hundred thousand dollars in equity. Uh, and in terms of my cash flow numbers, I'm looking at typically five to seven hundred dollars per door. I'd like to see a three family cash flow about twenty one hundred dollars uh, when it's all said and done. Will I accept eighteen? Probably if it's in a promising neighborhood or if there's a, a lot of upside on the uh, equity uh, equity uh, uh, split you know, at the end of the day. And then I basically I'm doing it one of two ways. I'm either doing that through a construction loan uh, through a what's called a temp to perm. So I'm buying it. The uh, local lender understands that I'm renovating the property. And then instead of me having to, if you're familiar with the Burr strategy, instead of me having to refinance out of it, that construction loan converts to a permanent loan. At the end of that, at the end of the construction period, and rides out through there. I've recently tried to take this up a notch, a step further, because the problem with that is you buy, you renovate, it turns into a permanent loan. That's great, but my money is still now stuck in the deal and not allowing me to pull that cash back out and do another deal. So now I've been going back to these commercial lenders and asking for uh, what's called an earned out, uh, meaning that. Let's say, for instance, uh, in that situation, I would have exactly eight an 80-20 ratio. I would have 600 purchase, 200 construction. It's worth a million. They would probably say, no, you don't have any, any money to do an earned out. But let's say if I created a little bit more equity, let's say the property is worth one one or a little bit more, one two. I've now been able to go to them and say, well, let me go back up to that 80-20 ratio pull some cash back out on the on the back end and they've they've been willing to do that with me. Um so I'm basically doing the burst strategy and essentially one transaction uh versus having to break it down into multiple. So uh, and to, you know, sorry, the last part of your question, cash flow $700 per door, $2100 a, a building. If I hit that, I'm not asking too many other questions. My only other question is my payback period. When can I how soon can I get the money back in my pocket? And if those two things look good for me, you know, I look at return on investment, but cash on cash, a lot of cap rates and all that stuff, I don't really uh, concern myself with too much. Cash flow, return on investment, and payback period are the three uh, uh, measures that I'm looking at uh, closely. So if you're at 80-20, let's just say, and let's say it's valued at you know 1-1, you have roughly, and I'm stating this as a statement, but it's really a question. So you, so you have like a couple hundred grand of your cash still in the building of your own money? Um, Let's say, for instance, well, here's the thing is I probably have uh, most lenders are looking for, and again, this is this is relationship based, right? So I only uh, the way that most construction loans work is they want twenty percent down on the purchase price, and then they'll finance a hundred percent of the construction cost. So technically, if I'm buying at six hundred, I'm only putting about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars down out of my own money uh, for the actual purchase of the building. They'll give me a hundred percent of the construction costs on the back end. If I hit a one 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 two, I should be able to. Uh, refinance that or do through that earned out, pull my 120 back out altogether. And I essentially own that building for no money out of my own pocket. So why am I not concerned about cap rates and everything else? I just bought a three family with no money out of my own pocket in less than nine months. So I mean, like, 
if it performs at a, you know, a, a five cap or a 15 cap, it mean, it really makes no difference for me because, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not into it for anything. My goodness, man, you, you've got a, a really, 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 really admirable formula. Do you have investors that are involved with you or are you just doing it on your own at this point? No, I, I certainly have investors as well. My, I, I have a lot of family members involved as well. Um, I try to, I would say a lot, but I get try to get my family members involved as much as possible just because, like I said, I want to, uh, for me, it's always like, I don't want to be rich alone, man. That's just, I, you know, I want, it's, it's always, it's always been a fear of mine. Like I knew I'm going to, I know I'm going to be okay, um, but I don't want to be rich alone. I, I, like I said, I'd like to have somebody on that yacht with me. So, you know, bring a lot of family members along, get them involved in the business, um, whether it be a lender from a lender standpoint or an equity standpoint. Uh, and then I have some outside lenders as well. Uh, some people that are, you know, partners. What I love to do is, um, you know, especially in, you know, and, uh, you know, I do a lot of stuff in, you know, in um, the, I think you had asked this question, maybe call it the C neighborhoods in Boston, right? That's the bulk of my portfolio is section eight uh, rental neighborhoods. We do a lot of public, you know, the public housing, housing voucher uh, type neighborhoods. And, you know, growing up in those neighborhoods as well, I see, you know, um, you know, a lot of changes and gentrification and things that people, you know, people talk about. So one of the things that I always try to do is, these the things that I'm talking about construction loans and LTVs and these are not things that are known to most people. So, giving opportunities to a local real estate agent or a local investor, somebody who finds an opportunity and says, "Hey, I know how to flip this thing. I really love to hold it." Um, I always go out and I basically say, "If you find a deal, um, don't worry about the cash. Don't worry about the financing. I have the credit. I have the lender connections and everything else. Let's bring it on." And you know, I I give them a piece of the equity on the front end and say. Let me show you how to do this construction piece. Let me show you how to finance this thing. Uh, and there's been, you know, uh, quite a few people that have taken me up on that opportunity. So uh, of those units, yeah, there's there's obviously some people in there that are financing partners, and there's also some partners in there that are uh, front end acquisitions partners as well. If that makes sense, it does. So so here's a question. So with Section Eight, uh, what is the length of tenancy? Is it like do these people stay for a long time? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, there, there. I don't find there is there, there to be any difference uh, between a you know uh, uh, an individual with a housing voucher and an individual who is a market based tenant. You know, I mean, the only building that I have that differs in terms of turnover and vacancy is uh, we have a building. Uh, it was an emotional purchase. Uh, I told you, my wife and I both went to Northeastern. Uh, both went to Northeastern University, and we had an opportunity to buy a three-family minutes from campus. So that is a uh, more of a student housing play for us, and obviously that turnover is uh, can be you know annual there. But for the most part, everybody else is you know two, three years. I have some tenants that have been there with me for ten. And how, and when somebody vacates, how long does it take to find somebody else? All depends. We have to remember we are not in San Francisco, so uh, January, February, and March here are absolutely brutal. And the the thing that you always want to, and one of the things that I, I think about more often than cap rates is when am I turning over units? And the last thing I try to do is I try to do everything I can to avoid having them turn over. Actually, even, even worse than that is I would say it's more like December, January, February, March. Brutally cold, obviously, during the winter. Uh, no one is moving. And then obviously during December, you have you know the holiday season. If you and tell you the truth, I really don't want anything turning over in November either. So November, December, January, February, March, I try to take the other seven months 
Uh, and, and even with my renovations, if I know that I can probably finish something in February, maybe I do, or maybe I just kind of let it hang out there and just kind of wrap it up in, you know, in, in March or something like that, understanding that, uh, I can take my time, focus on some other things because, uh, I have until April or May before tenants really start moving. But that is one of the downsides of Boston. We do get, you know, quite a bit of snow. We do have a much colder months, uh, and you couple that with the holiday season and there's not much moving in that, you know, that four to five month time frame. So that is super interesting. So, you know, let's say hypothetically, you know, somebody leaves in, you know, December one, can it take three months to find a new tenant? Uh, it could. Yeah, it, it absolutely could. I mean, you have two things going for you. One, well, two things you know that are working. One is the winter time. It depends on how bad the winter is. I mean, 2015, I'm not sure if you if where you're listening, who's listening or where you're listening to this from 2015 was an awful year. It was a year I'll never forget. I there was snow where there was, I remember pulling up to my house, uh, two story home and I couldn't even see the top of my house. It was, there was snow here that didn't melt until July of that, of that summer. <laughs> That's how bad it was. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm not even exaggerating. There was snow on the ground. I remember driving down the street, uh, at the plaza or the, the mall that's not too far from our house. Uh, and there was a shaded area underneath the garage that where snow hadn't melt until July of the following year. That's how bad, uh, 2015 is. Outside of that, again, if you if you don't have stuff like that, you can probably get leased up, but you you have a much better opportunity of doing it during the spring and summer months. Uh, there are just people are just do not want to get out. Um, it's difficult to find parking. You have to remember Boston's a very uh, uh, congested city as well. And then you try to find trying to find parking in Boston during the summertime is difficult. Try to find parking when half of the parking spots are taken up by snow uh, snow mounds. There are people here. <laughs> as a side note, that their car gets buried. And they don't see their, they don't drive their car for four, four months out of the year. You know, it might get buried in December or January and you might not see your car again until April or May. Uh, it's a crazy place to be in. You'd, you'd prefer to avoid those, uh, those months if you could. Uh, but yes, the answer to your question, yes, you very well could be vacant for 90 days. Uh, if you are finishing a renovation project or have a vacancy take place at a, uh, you know, an unfortunate time. I was with my family, my wife and two kids in Boston four or three years ago, and we were there the first week of April, and we were just there as tourists, and it was snowing. And, uh, you know, living in Northern California, my kids don't know anything from snow. I grew up in Cleveland, so I, I know snow. Maybe not as much as you, but I, I know snow. My kids didn't know what hit them, man. And they, let my, <laughs> you know, my kid, my kids wouldn't have been interested in the Freedom Trail in, in July or August. <laughs> but, they, exactly. but they sure as hell weren't interested in the beginning of April when they were freezing, you know, they were freezing to death. You wouldn't even be able to find the Freedom Trail in, in most, uh, in most months of January and February. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised the uh, col- I'm surprised the colonists found the freedom trail. Found the freedom, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, um, you know what? You've got like such a great, you know, you're so niched out. You've got a formula. Um, you figured out a lot of stuff. You know, nothing's easy. So I, I am sure you work day and night. I would imagine. But my, my goodness, just fantastic. And um, wow, you're just going to keep going, and you've amassed just insane amounts of net worth. And so good for you. Gosh, I appreciate um, it. I appreciate yeah. it. So h- how old are your kids? Uh, two and four. Two and four. Uh, my daughter uh, is four. My son. Uh, just had his second birthday. Very interesting age. I like it. You know, my my wife prefers kids when they're you know they're babies and it's the the Google Gaga stage and they don't really move and everything. I 
you know, now my son is trying to stick things in the electrical sockets <laughs> and, you know, and tumbling down the stairs and, uh, you know, anything that's dangerous, you know, the oven, wh- whatever you can find is, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, joke with my wife all the time and I'm only kind of half joking. I wish I had two girls. My daughter was the easiest thing in the world. We didn't even baby proof the house. We just basically kind of just wrote it out and she's never, you tell her something's dangerous once she believes you and calls it a day. You know, my son is a, is a, the kid's reckless, man. Absolutely reckless. <laughs> you know, I, I prefer kids once they're like 18, 18 and older. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm getting there, man. I got one that's 18 and one that's 16. And it's like, you know, freedom is, is going, freedom is, is, is just around the corner. Um, right, right, right. No, I, we, we talk about that on a regular basis as well. We, we spent our honeymoon in Italy. Uh, we went to, um, you know, Siena, we went to uh, Sorrento and uh, the Amalfi Coast and a couple other places. And it was just kind of mind blowing to have, you know, to have that time down there. And, um, you know, I, we, t- we talk about it all the time. As soon as my son hits 18, that's, you know, as soon as he ships off to college. Uh, we're going to be those parents where like, you know, <laughs> where you're going to have to like, you know, sat Dallas or something like that. Cause we're going to be in such a secluded place that, uh, you know, uh, if they ever get in trouble in school, they're going to have to call auntie or uncle. Cause we won't be around. So exactly that, that, that's <laughs> the plan. Did, did you guys go to Pompeii? Oh, uh, we did. Uh, we did not get a chance to. No, not while we were there. No, we, we, there was so much. I, I, I was a big fan. We, we were in Rome for a while and, uh, the food is just absolutely amazing. And, uh, I, you know, we loved our time there. And that's another reason I work as hard as I do, because I want to make sure I can get back there and spend some significant time there next time we, uh, next time we go. So here's a, another personal question. Where is your dad now? Um, that's a good question. I try, he's still, uh, just kind of, you know, hanging around and he, he resurfaced when my grandmother passed five years ago and I have not spoken to him since. I think there was a 25 year gap or maybe more, maybe a 30 year gap between the time I spoke to him. And then when my grandmother passed several years ago, uh, I spoke to him once he kind of resurfaced, thought there was maybe going to be some money for him. Uh, and now he is, uh, you know, kind of in the wind again. Uh, and if you Google Willie Mandrell, I try, you'll notice that I am out there heavily. And the reason, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever admitted this to anybody else, but this is a good question. You're, you're a good interviewer. Um, the reason I get myself out there so heavily and start, you know, different publications and everything else is so if there's any bad news that pops up with his name, we, we share the same name. I am the third. So if there's any bad news, any bad press that pops up with his name, hopefully I'm able to bury the story with positive news. that that takes some social media expertise but i have had issues in my youth battled my substance abuse and i've been clean and sober for for darn near 35 years and so i i understand uh but it sounds to me like he just you know some get it and some most don't but he he must have been hearing the way you've described your grandmother he must have been an incredible disappointment to his mother, especially given her perspective on things and what she achieved. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's why, again, I mean, you're pretty good at this, Roger. I mean, <laughs> no, that's another reason. It's one of the things that has driven me throughout my career as well, uh, especially early on, is understanding the disappointment that my father was and not wanting to let that be our family legacy, not wanting to you know, wanting to, especially before she passed, uh, show her uh, as much of uh, of what we can do as possible. So I, I just really wanted to be the best person for her. 
uh, and understand that, you know, though it didn't work out with him, uh, it wasn't going to continue. It wasn't going to be part of our permanent family legacy. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to kind of change the narrative around uh, who we were and what we did. And that's one of the things that I think helped me as well. I think my grandmother, uh, his mother, gave him too much. I graduated from Northeast University and I did it on, you know, on uh, on loans, on student loans, and I paid them off not too long ago. And uh, he was given a, you know, full ride by by her to Northeast and didn't didn't attend, didn't didn't focus, didn't finish, uh, was giving a three family or actually, excuse me, six unit. She bought him a six family uh, in Dorchester. He used it as kind of a hangout spot, bought a bunch of dogs and just kind of, you know, just used it as kind of a clubhouse for himself and never really took the business seriously. So when we, my brothers and I came along, it was that mentality shift for her. It was instead of giving a man a fish, I'm going to teach a man to fish. And I think that helped me more than anything, her giving me the lessons uh, and teaching me, you know, and showing me my father's mistakes versus handing me something. Um, I think those lessons, uh, you know, helped push me along uh, a lot more than uh, they would have if it was just kind of here, take this and uh, and run with it. So what are your two brothers doing? Uh, they're both in real estate as well. Uh, they're not as uh, chaotic or not chaotic, uh, passionate about it as I am and, uh, you know, kind of obsessed with it as I am. But my both of my brothers own multiple units and are kind of in, you know, kind of in the business as well. Right on, man. Well, uh, gosh, fantastic uh, conversation as far as I'm concerned. Willie, if if one were to want to get a hold of you and or if you actually wanted them to get a hold of you, how how would, <laughs> how would they do that? Um, you can like it depends on. I mean, everybody's on a different social media platform today. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube, LinkedIn, wherever you are. If you Google Willie Mandrell, uh, one of those social media links will, pa- will pop up. If you um, if you're looking for more content, if you're looking to learn, um, I talk a lot about you know my story. I share a lot about commercial real estate, about investing, about finding good deals, about everything else on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash W Mandrell, I think is the best place to connect, subscribe. Uh, but again, I am on all those other platforms as well. The last thing I will ask is this, another complete non sequitur. Have you seen your uh, new dad relatively, so I'm sure you're not watching a lot of TV, but have you seen uh, the commercials for uh, Sam Adams? I have not. No, we uh, with with two new kids. It's Disney Plus all day long. I so, get it. Yeah, we're not a lot of TV. They're brilliant, and the reason I ask is because it's just as you you know that they're there. They're based in Boston, but it's these commercials. They they brand the beer to all, they wrap it all around the city of Boston, and they're very funny because they're all with like Boston accents. Oh and yes, I no, I have. I I've seen them. I think there was a. There was the guy from the office, and there was a couple others uh, on the, you know, uh, the 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 Marty Walsh. Me and Marty Walsh went to <laughs> Dorchester, and uh, he went to Harvard. I went to Harvard, and we park our car over at on the Dorchester yard all the time. Um, yeah, that 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 that. I it's a funny question you didn't ask. I always get it. Why don't you sound like you're from Boston? I'm like you, you're talking about the uh, when I tell you to bury a body in the mash, you bury it in the mash. You mean that accent? <laughs> not, all, not all of us sound like that. <laughs> well, that's why I brought it up because to me, you do sound like you're from Boston. That's oh, why I do I, really. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, I totally. But that's what that's why it, it made me think of it, and that's why I asked you. Gotcha, gotcha. I guess it's where where you where you know your perspective because I get told all the time. I you know every time I go to a conference somewhere and some you you don't sound like you're from Boston, and I like I. I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so you're the first person to tell me I do sound like I'm from Boston. So that, that's interesting. So I guess it's, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Well, well, yeah, but no, I, I have seen a few of them. I, I know which ones you're talking about now. So us people, the people, some people from Boston actually get annoyed by that stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they do. This, this one commercial is my favorite one. It goes, it just starts like this. And I don't even remember what else it says. It goes, your cousin from Boston. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, went yeah, to yeah. camp as a kid up in Maine for many years. And, and a lot, a lot of the kids were from Boston. And so I've been hearing the Boston accent since I was like, you know, seven, eight years old. Anyway, we're digressing. This has been fantastic. And I can't thank you enough. And uh, congratulations on this new deal. You're about ready to close. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Knock on wood for the everything goes smoothly this afternoon. Uh, I always say you're never you're never closed until you're closed until they record that thing at the registry of deeds There's always something that can go wrong. You know, like I said, but uh, yeah, hopefully everything goes smoothly. We're looking good today. And you know, hopefully we got a couple more units that we can uh, work on and put into the portfolio. But Roger, I appreciate you having me on. And it was a, uh, you know, it was a pleasure having this conversation with you. Yep. You too. Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Bye.